welcome to Churchpreneur's Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith-related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world within this generation. In this podcast, I'll talk about everything that's moving me in relation to church and theology, hopefully to empower you in your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and hopefully your personal growth in Christ. Today, I'd like to talk about what role does experience play in my Christian life, or what role should experience play in my Christian life. Over the last little while, I've had a lot of conversations with friends, family, and other acquaintances. They've been wonderful and wonderfully eye-opening to the effects of relativism that are present in our culture, even the Christian culture. Relativism is the doctrine that truth is not absolute, but rather relative to my situation, my culture, or maybe even my feelings. This is especially seen and understood on a deeper level in relation to a person's experiences. I have heard this perspective so often lately that I'd like to address the role that experience should play in our Christian lives. I've had many conversations recently with people from all sorts of Christian perspectives who talk about their Christian experience. The conversations I've had with people usually go something like this. I call into question the theological foundations of particularly the New Apostolic Reformation, of which I'm an expert. I've written a book on it called Divergent Theology, and um, a movement that I believe in a lot of ways has left theological Christian orthodoxy. The person then um, I'm talking with defends the movement, its leaders, its teachers, its prophets or apostles, and uh, most of them having precarious or clearly theologically inaccurate teachings. I return then to uh, numerous examples of these precarious or inaccurate teachings from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I take their own quotes, their own references, their own books, their own videos and materials, and I put it to the person to ask them, does this sound theologically orthodox to you, or does this sound theologically accurate, biblically accurate? The person then usually tries to uh, say something like, um, that teacher didn't mean that that way, or um, he taking him out of context, or something like this, um, and you, you're not understanding him correctly, um, or that I've understood um, him improperly. The Bible actually does teach what the teacher does say in some way or another. Uh, There's a few back and forth interactions usually then where I try to show the person how Christian orthodoxy does not agree with what that teacher has said, using the Bible, Christian creeds, even logic to connect the dots um, is usually not enough for a person to say, wait a minute, maybe this does fall outside of Christian orthodoxy or Christian theological Uh, the realm of Christian theology. Uh, The discussion usually breaks down into, well, I had a good experience with some of those teachers. I had a good experience at their churches or something like that. Uh, I'll just give you a few examples of responses uh, I've had over the last months. And a lot of this 
interaction does take place over Facebook or texting or SMS. A few have taken place person to person, uh, but it's usually um, because I've posted something from that teacher or leader that uh, the person really appreciates. They like that teacher or leader. It comes to the forefront that the person really is a fan. And so they'll say something to the effect of my family's been blessed by the ministry of such and such or so and so. I can only share my experience as a believer. Um, and then another, another people would say, I've had another point of view uh, and understanding than you. My personal testimony is different than yours. Other people might say something like, uh, in my eyes, that doesn't, this doesn't lead anywhere, this discussion. There's no fruit from this. It's not encouraging. It only produces anger and separation. One, one person said to me, the devil rejoices in, um, in this discussion. Uh, that you're using good and sound doctrine more than Jesus does. Um, I've also had it said to me, I can't argue with you theologically. I can't debate that. Um, I just can count on my own experience. I only look into my heart and see what God's showing me there. My experiences are as valid as yours. So what can we do about this difference? Your experience is this. My experience is that. What are we going to do about this? Um, another one, this is a common theme um, or a common argument. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This and that church does a lot of good stuff too. So we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I come from a, to a different con conclusion than you. I understand they're teaching differently than you do and I can tolerate some mistakes, uh, but those mistakes are very minor. So um, the truly theologically uh, aberrant statements from some of these leaders are not enough for the person to say that they're not major, they're only minor. Even when some of these churches are a little bit off, what I see is acceptable and encourages my walk with God. These are the typical th kind of things. I've even been called um, in the last little bit, um, a very, this is a very interesting one. Someone said to me this, your questioning of this church is very pharisaical and not how the kingdom of God operates. So uh, as a result of saying, wait a minute, do they square up with the creeds? Do they square up with the theological positions of Christian history? Do they square up with the Bible? Uh, do they not just square up with the Bible, but do they, they line up with our understanding uh, of Christian theology for thousands of years? So um, when you bring these things into question, um, be careful. You might be called a Pharisee and the like. Um, so these are just a few ways that people usually call me into question when I, when I question someone's experience with uh, one of these movements that have come up uh, in the last maybe 20 years, uh, the New Apostolic Reformation being one of them. A telltale sign of a cult-like atmosphere is an inappropriate loyalty to its leaders. I have definitely seen this in the last several years since the release of my book called Divergent Theology, which calls into question the biblical authenticity of the teaching of the leaders of the New Apostolic Reformation. I've heard in the last years an unquestioning loyalty to its leaders, uh, to the movement, to churches, to apostles and prophets within the movement, 
And I've also seen in these conversations that dissent um, and discussion of a negative or questioning nature are highly discouraged. These are all signs of cult-like behavior. Another sign of cult-like culture and behavior is overemphasis, overemphasis on the religious experiences. Certain churches and movements, even within Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, that they have this overemphasis on an experience. It's like uh, when Mormons will say, I had a burning in my bosom. So what does that mean? It's, it's, the, it's the feeling I had when you become a Mormon or you've turned to Mormonism. One thing that comes up again and again with those affected by uh, certain church, churches that value experience is the key experience is the key aspect of our faith. But it's not the key driver. Something is not confirmed as authentic or true because we had a great experience with it. The Bible is pretty clear that false prophets will be able to do miracles that create an environment where people will feel like they're experiencing God. But they'll be experiencing a faux or pseudo-Christianity. That's actually the word uh, in the Greek. It's a false or a pseudo, a, a half Christianity. Jesus clearly describes these false or pseudo teachers are not known by Jesus. Jesus even called them wolves in sheep's clothing. Matthew 17, 15 through 23. Let's think about that for a moment. What would wolves dressed up as sheep do? They would stealthily come in among a flock, unbeknownst to the flock, for the purpose of destroying, devouring, and ravaging the flock. What do wolves do in relation to sheep? They kill and eat them. Sheep are helpless to defend themselves against wolves. They rely on the shepherd and his warnings and guidance to keep us away or to keep the dangers away. Thus, Jesus, the good shepherd, warns against such ravenous wolves who would want to come in and destroy his flock. Matthew Henry comments on this passage of scripture and he says, Take heed of those who pretend to revelation and admit them not without sufficient proof, lest that one absurdity be being admitted, a thousand follow. So the wolf that is admitted with one theological absurdity will be admitted with a thousand more little absurdities to follow. As a result of this almost two year process of uncovering some of the theological problem areas in the new apostolic reformation, um, I've witnessed what I might call a theology of experience, which is actually the fallacy of relativism. The fallacy of relativism is this, alone that people have been blessed by something isn't proof or even evidence of its authenticity. I know of hundreds of people who've been destroyed by this movement, the New Apostolic Reformation, whose experience counts. Do those count who've been blessed by the movement or those who've been destroyed by it um, in, in a real cult-like um, type of manner? Those who've been blessed or those who've been destroyed? Who, whose experience counts? If a positive experience is proof of something's authenticity, um, then we've got a big conundrum here because there's been, I, I, I know personally of uh, hundreds of people who have really truly been destroyed by the the uh, the movement? Authenticity cannot be gauged uh, on experience. That's the fallacy. 
If a movement's authenticity were based on positive experiences, then anyone who walked through the doors must be blessed. There must be a blessing for everyone who comes into contact with this movement, but that's not the case. We must be very careful not to make experience our ultimate authority. I'll give you an example. Mormons give you a free Book of Mormon to anyone who visits the Mormon temple. So uh, I did that uh, years ago. I went to Oakland, the Mormon temple in Oakland, California. It's a beautiful structure in the Oakland Hills. I had a great experience there. The people I interacted with were lovely, kind, caring, and compassionate people. They're very helpful and they are very passionate about their truth, but they are not Christian and their theology does not line up with scripture. Scripture is a, is a Christian's authority, not our experience. I read recently a book called Why the Reformation Still Matters. It addresses this topic of experience very well. Michael Reeves and Tim Chester write, during the Reformation, the main alternative to revelation was tradition. Today we perhaps suffer from a deficiency of tradition rather than a surfeit of it. What has replaced tradition as the rival to revelation is experience. They're so right in that. Experience is the God of the day. And some of the questions that arose for me out of these discussions with people were, what would it take to denounce something as a false teaching or, wolf, or someone who is a wolf in sheep's clothing? Because of the answers I got, I've deepened my call to theology and making theology a main aspect of my ministry. This is why we should know theology, because we want to love and want a relationship with the theos that we study. Theology is about knowing and explaining the eternal God in a correct manner. Any other goals in theology are secondary to this. Colossians 2.6 says this, As you have received Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. This means the same way we walk with God is the same way we received him, namely by faith. We received him by faith and we walk with him also by faith, as Hebrews 11 so clearly and so beautifully points out. Even though we can have a deep and intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we don't set the terms of that relationship and neither does our experience. He does and thankfully he has made a way to have access to him through Jesus Christ. Our experience of God is not on our own terms. We can, we can and only are able to experience God on the terms he has set for us in his word through faith and reliance on Jesus Christ. One of the people in those discussions asked me, what if I only had my Christian experience and did not have the Bible? My response was, well, we would not have a Christian experience without the Bible. So I'm very, very glad that God made sure we do because if we did not have the scriptures, we could not know Jesus Christ. Or at least we would not be able to know who he is. Could not be sure who he is. And we would not have a pure and loving relationship with Jesus Christ unless we had the scriptures. We couldn't know him. The reformers fought this battle years ago. It's the battle over the scriptures and how we can know God. It was found in one of the solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, which means that in the scriptures alone can we find a relationship and peace with God. In some of these discussions, I've heard in the last couple years a differentiation or people try to make a differentiation also between Jesus, the word and God's word. 
the Bible. However, they are one and the same. When we want to know who Jesus is, we should know his word. And when we get to know the word, we get to know who Jesus is. Jesus and his word, the scriptures, are inseparable. John 1.1 says it, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Furthermore, Jesus said not one iota or dot from the law, the written word will pass away until all is fulfilled in him. He said that in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus, he himself is the word of God. Thus he is the fulfillment and the actual manifestation of God and his word and what he wants to communicate to us. And the word is him in written form. We don't worship the Bible for sure, but the word is Christ and Christ is the word. When you read it, you read of and about him. If you want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead, as Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, then you'll find it in God's word, in the Bible. The Bible is the stalwart Christian experience that we have throughout the ages. One tool I like to use to help me understand the balance my Christian experience plays in my Christian life is uh, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's a sort of a, uh, a trapezoid type figure with several levels, several tiers. Um, and in this graphic, uh, scripture is at the bottom. That's the foundation of our Christian life. Tradition is next on the rung or on the quadrilateral. And uh, tradition does, can and should play a, a pretty interesting and important role, but it's not, again, scripture. Scripture is the foundation. Tradition is the next building block. Then reason or logic. And then finally and lastly, experience does play a role in our Christian life. Uh, it's not the only thing we use, but it is one of the things that we can use um, and we, we play a role in our ex Christian experience. Wesley puts experience at the last and final building block of the quadrilateral. It's not the most important thing, but it's not unimportant either. We do, however, not build on its foundation, but rather we allow it to supplement and complement our faith. If something that we've heard, seen, experienced, or otherwise witnessed in regards to faith and how we are made right with God stands in direct opposition to scripture, it is to be summarily rejected. We can also take the counsels of the church fathers, for instance, if anything teaches subtly or outright against the Trinity or hypostatic union of Christ, then we can summarily reject it because we stand on the tradition and accepted teachings of Christendom. The error that's becoming tendential is to turn the quadrilateral upside down and make our experience the foundation of our faith. I've witnessed in the current Christian landscape that people tend to let their experience confirm or validate the scripture, when in reality we should let the scripture be our foundation and validation of everything else. My experience is not authoritative. My experience doesn't validate the scripture. The scripture validates my experience. I want to be faithful to embrace the ways that God has revealed in his word how he does work, and in doing that, I embrace the certainty and the mystery of his ways. 
I hope this has blessed you. Let's with fresh faith and vigilance commit ourselves with great zeal to the Word of God and let our Christian experience support the words written there, not the other way around. Thanks for listening to the Churchpreneurs podcast. You can find out more information on my website at richardpmore.net. And I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is richardpmore23. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast, please reach out on any one of those platforms. God bless you until next time.